Welcome to this BJSM podcast. I'm with Stuart Biddle, and Stuart is a professor at Victoria University in Melbourne. He's the professor of active living and public health, and he's just done a keynote talk at Sports Medicine Australia's major conference, which is called Be Active 14. And we're going to talk about some factors related to physical inactivity, the problems related to it, and why people aren't doing such a great job. Stuart, welcome to this podcast. Thank you very much. It's uh, good to be here. And Stuart, why don't we just jump straight in and get you to give us an overview of the problems you addressed in your keynote. Yeah, what I tried to do in the lecture was really to highlight issues around behaviour change, both for physical activity and for sedentary behaviour, which is what we call uh, too much sitting time, basically. And I was quite clear in trying to state a public health approach. That means that I'm interested in getting widespread behavior change across populations, not just around one or two individuals. So I've taken a public health approach or a population health approach where we're trying to have changes across large numbers of people. And that can occur both for physical activity and for sedentary behavior. So if we jump into sedentary behavior, our audience is smart and um, on top of the field. And they know that sitting is a problem. So what have you got to add to take that further? You're right, sedentary behavior is definitely a problem and a lot of people know that. Uh, the research literature has tended to focus initially on measuring how sedentary people are and then also to look at the health effects of, of sedentary behavior and that's becoming quite well documented. I think what's been said rather less about that area is how can we change it uh, I guess we're all familiar with standing desks and things like that. That's all fine. So really, I was trying to look in a bit more detail as to why we're sedentary and uh, what we can do about it. Actually, if we look back uh, many years, 60 years to be precise, uh, research was started in London around the double-decker London buses, looking at physically active bus conductors collecting tickets and the sedentary bus driver sitting and driving and the different health effects that you get from those two occupations. So I think sitting in the workplace is a big problem and I was trying to bring a behaviour change perspective to that by emphasising issues around how we can modify people's lifestyles, not just in... Uh, you know, sport or exercise, but in workplace health and in active travel and, and, and how we can move more and sit less in those, those contexts. So, for example, one study that I think is particularly informative is where um, some researchers in the United States documented the energy expenditure of, uh, of jobs and the trends from the 1960s to the current day and perhaps unsurprisingly, there's been a big drop in jobs that revolve around moderate physical activity, energy expenditure, and a, a concomitant rise in jobs that 
require you either to sit down or only involve you in very light physical activity. So in essence, we've lost a lot of physical activity through our jobs, and a lot of that will be taken up by sitting. Okay, so what are we going to do about it, Stuart? How are we going to fix this? Well, of course, that is one of the big uh, issues, and I try to make a number of uh, points on this. The first one is that uh, if you take sedentary behavior, meaning sitting time, it takes up a very large portion of the day, whereas moderate to vigorous physical activity takes up a very small proportion of the day. Now, that's not to say moderate to vigorous physical activity isn't important. Of course it is, and we must continue to promote that. But what we can do is to shift some of our sedentary time into light physical activity. And light physical activity would be standing more, uh, light ambulation, light walking, incidental physical activity. For example, in the office, getting up, moving across to the printer, getting up, uh, putting some paper into the recycling bin, that kind of thing. And although it may not meet guidelines for physical activity in the moderate to vigorous sense, it will be beneficial in reducing sitting time and increasing light physical activity. Now, at the same time, we know that there are a number of people who have different combinations of sitting and moving. So this puts another layer of complication, if you like, on that. So you could get some people who are, uh, get sufficient moderate to vigorous physical activity. They might go to the gym, for example, and, and do perfectly uh, good and healthy physical activity for, for 30 minutes, 45 minutes in a day, but then sit for the rest of the day. While somebody else might not sit for very much time and equally not do very much moderate to vigorous physical activity. And so you can have lots of combinations of these uh, behaviors and maybe we need to target people differently according to where they, they fit in that kind of model. So it's been said that we live in an environment that's obesogenic and promotes sitting. What can we do about that? That's a very good point. And I think when we use the word environment, we generally think of our general surroundings, our physical environment, the availability of foods and, and so on. And that's all fine, that's all true. Perhaps it might be a good way to look at environments in at least four different ways. One is your private environment or your personal environment. It's what goes on in your head. What you think, what you like, what you dislike, what you're motivated towards, what you're not motivated towards. So that's the typical psychology. Secondly, you've got a social environment. The people around you, the way you interact with them, whether you get social support from them and so on. Then you've got a physical environment, which is the traditional way we think about environment, whether you're in a big city, whether you're in a rural area, whether you've got access to facilities and so on. And then finally, you've got a policy environment in which you shape these different behaviors which governments and uh, other organizations may legislate for. So all of those sit within each other, and it's called a social ecological model, and we need to really influence all of those. So, for example, if you look at the Foresight report in the UK on obesity, you, there's a fantastic diagram in there that looks like a, a bowl of spaghetti with all these arrows between different factors affecting obesity. And one look at that is it makes you think it's all rather overcomplicated. But 
you could overlay on that areas that are clearly to do with individual psychology or clearly to do with individual biology or clearly to do with the food environment. So you've got all these clusters of influencing factors which um, make sense for, in this case, obesity, but it could be any, any behavior, physical activity or, or, or too much sitting. So I think we need to bring these influences to, together under these broader headings of different environments, you know, individual psychology, social environments, physical environments, policy environments, and that gives us a great framework in which to start to seek solutions. So you've got some interesting ideas about individual motivations. Let's start with individuals first. Yeah, my background has been in psychology and I studied motivation for a long period of time. And whilst I still think those perspectives are very helpful, there are also some misunderstandings. For example, um, a lot of people think motivation is simply about how much motivation you've got. And really motivation is about focusing on certain things as well as how much motivation you have. And so we, we talk about motivation towards different physical activities uh, or, or even uh, different foods, uh, different environments and so on. So I think we need to understand that motivation is not just about quantity, it's about quality of motivation and, and direction of motivation. Secondly, uh, motivation is not just one thing, there are different forms of motivation. These, these tend to, to range from more extrinsic forms, such as being paid to do something you otherwise wouldn't do, towards more internal or intrinsic motivation where you do things for, for fun and enjoyment and real satisfaction. Now, of course, ideally, we want everybody to be intrinsically motivated towards physical activity, even towards not sitting so much, because that's what they want to do. They value that as a behavior. And so we need to work ourselves away from motivation, which is around what I call the I ought to statement, I ought to exercise, and bring it round to I want to exercise, where you're more internal and you're more self-directed. So I think those are quite important. The third motivation myth, if you like, is that uh, all we need are simply high levels of willpower to be involved in physical activity, particularly structured exercise. And I think it's probably a better way to look at this is to say, well, why don't we try to make the behavior of physical activity easier to do and more pleasurable to do? So there's a very interesting model that uh, B.J. Fogg from Stanford University, whose website I, I recommend, it's very interesting, uh, he's proposed a model which... Um, documents your motivation against your ability, if you like, to do a behavior. And his basic premise is we should try to make the behavior easier to do rather than expect people to become more motivated. And I'm quite taken by that. Of course, motivation helps. Of course, we want to become more committed to certain behaviors. But if we make the behavior a little easier to do, that will certainly make uh, quite a difference. And what are examples where this has been done successfully? So one way we could look at this is to look at this notion of nudging. So nudge is a relatively new concept where we try to persuade people in a, almost in a way of stealth, 
into certain health behaviors. Uh, perhaps the obvious one is um, in food environments. If you provide a buffet-style uh, food, which is high in calories, energy density, and so on, people will generally eat it. And if you provide another kind of buffet, uh, they will eat that uh, as a healthier option without necessarily making conscious decisions. It's just availability. They're nudged. They're persuaded. They're um, steered in the direction of a certain health behavior. Well, we can do that for physical activity. We can uh, we understand that people either reflect on different behaviors, they decide to do certain things, or they're nudged into it in a more automatic way where there's much less conscious processing. So there's a very nice video that some of you might want to check out on the web where um, the um, people in an in a underground uh, station, uh, put the stairs, converted the stairs next to an escalator into a set of piano keys. And so when people walk up the stairs, the music plays, and it's like you stepping onto a piano. It's very innovative. It's, it's a fun thing to do. You walk up the stairs, you get different tunes played and so on. And this automatically uh, increased the rate of people climbing those stairs over the more... Um, inactive option of uh, just standing on a moving escalator. So there's a brilliant example of nudge. It was a fun thing to do. It was easily available. It's a little bit novel, and it, it made physical activity more accessible. So I think this notion of nudge rather than just high levels of motivation um, uh, has, has a lot of currency, and we ought to look more into that. Another example might be providing these bikes, bicycles in these city bike hire schemes. Uh, nobody's telling you to bike, nobody's forcing you to bike, but it's more readily available. It's an easier thing to do than it would have been if that bike scheme didn't exist. So another example would be changing your environment by providing uh, bike paths, walking paths, not only providing them, but making sure that people who use them are in an attractive and safe environment. Uh, quite often, cycle paths are merely a token effort. And there's a line drawn on the road. Meanwhile, you have to cycle next to a big uh, truck, which is not very attractive. Um, but the concept is right. You provide separate uh, and accessible ways of being uh, physically active. This resonates with Switch, which is a book uh, I've spoken about before on um, podcasts and mentioned in BJSM, where Dan Heath and Pip Heath talk about um, shaping the path is their expression for that. So thanks for those resources, Stuart. And as we come towards the end of this podcast, um, you know, there are a couple of other approaches, um, novel approaches that you shared with the audience at this conference at Sports Medicine Australia. In the UK, the government were quite interested in how we can change people's behaviour for health. This is a pretty fundamental question. Um, but of course, what governments don't want to do is to be accused of bossing people around and wagging their fingers at people who smoke or eat certain foods or become obese and so on. And it, we know over many years that the, these kind of um, so-called finger-wagging approaches don't work very well. So drawing on behavioral economics, trying to understand people's choices and decision-making, the Institute for Government.org.uk website is an interesting one to look at. And there's a report there called Mindspace. Mindspace is simply an acronym for uh, eight 
or nine, I think it is uh, different uh, words that describe influences on our behavior. And I won't go through all of them right now, but you've got things like uh, norms. So the N in Mindspace stands for norms, and it says that we are strongly influenced by what others do. So if you can create an environment around you, like standing in meetings, which initially may seem rather odd, but quickly catches on, then uh, other people will start to copy. If uh, several people are cycling to the office and you've got an environment that allows you to do that, you can shower, change, store your bikes and so on, then other people start to do that. So norms is very, very important. And it doesn't require a lot of um, you know, motivation or thinking. It kind of happens because other people are doing it. Um, similarly, we tend to go with a flow of preset options. This is the so-called defaults part of the mind space uh, concept. So, for example, a lot of meeting rooms are fairly traditionally set out with chairs. Well, what would happen if you had some raised tables where you could stand, make notes, look at your laptop, look at your tablet, computer and use that as a default instead of uh, sitting the whole time. And then thirdly, and uh, this will be the final one I'll just talk about, but to say there are several concepts here, um, th th there's what they call priming. So for example, our, our behaviors, our health behaviors are often influenced by quite subconscious cues as to uh, what's around you, what your environment is nudging you to do. And that example of the piano stairs is a, is a very good one. We were primed in that example to use the stairs because of the attractive environment of stepping on the piano keys. We weren't told to do it, but we were primed to do it. So this report, the Mindspace report, is a very interesting one by getting you to think about lots of ways that influence behavior beyond the more traditional telling people what to do. And just in conclusion on that, it's quite consistent with, with other theories, for example, behavioral choice theory, which says that our choices that we make, like whether we choose to be physically active, whether we choose to be sitting for long periods of time, are essentially the product of two things. One is how accessible and how available is the behavior. Is it, is it accessible to be physically active? Is it, is it easy to do, do physical activity? And secondly, is it, is it enjoyable? Is it fun? Is it, is it something that... Um, you know, makes us feel good. And if you can get those two to come together, you make choices in, in certain directions. Unfortunately, at the moment, it's uh, very accessible to be uh, sitting. It's not so accessible to be physically active, um, particularly for transport. Um, but we need to find ways that make these things more accessible and more interesting. And that's where these things like the piano stairs or like this mind space concept help us think about that and change uh, change behavior at the risk of opening a can of worms um just towards the end of the uh, podcast you've also published a lot on uh, nutrition and um, physical activity and sedentary behavior and one of your several bjsm papers is um, a new systematic review coming out that's following up on a very successful one of yours on physical activity and sitting behavior in children. Um, do you want to give the readers a taste for that and then they can follow up and maybe we'd have to have another podcast. But is the question was really, if I remember, is sitting behavior associated with bad dietary behavior in, in children? Yeah, there's been uh, a lot 
uh, written about, uh, if we just stay with children to start with, children's uh, TV viewing, for example, sedentary behavior, computer use, uh, and its relationship to obesity. And some people have argued that actually, whether it's sitting that's the problem or whether it's also coupled with poor nutrition. So if you're sitting watching the television, particularly in a relatively mindless um, state, if, if, if I may put it that way, then you might indulge in unhealthy eating. So Natalie Pearson and I, when we were at Loughborough, put together a systematic review on that and found that unhealthy eating was definitely associated with higher levels of TV viewing. And if you want to, we, we can't say that's causally related, but you would suspect then that high levels of TV are at least associated with worse diet. Things like less fruit and veg, uh, high energy dense snacks, and high sugar sweetened drinks. We've just uh, updated that review, and uh, that is now coming out. And the same results, more studies are coming out in the last few years, and the results um, are quite consistent. And this is actually not just with children, but also with adults. Perhaps slightly less so with some other sedentary behaviors, where queuing of unhealthy eating is, is less likely, but TV is probably the main culprit where you get into this uh, rut of, of um, uh, watching TV. You might even be queued by adverts that are unhealthy. And there's a recent paper out on that that supports that. Uh, so the, the upshot of all this is it's probably a good idea not to be eating in front of the television. You should have family meals together away from the television, and hopefully we can uncouple this healthy uh, unhealthy diet with um, screen time. Okay, and I'm conscious that we've been sitting for a while during this podcast. We were sitting listening to your great talk at the Sports Medicine Australia conference. You've got a couple of take-home messages. We're all trying to become better at our behaviour choices and to do the things we're meant to do. So what are your take-home messages for people from a lifetime of working in psychology and behaviour? I think there are two things I'll say then in conclusion. One is uh, a very useful strategy is to self-monitor, to monitor your own behavior. How much time do you sit? How much time do, are you physically active? Could you uh, use that information then to set yourself a little goal or a target, uh, get some feedback on how well you're doing, and of course continue to modify your behavior? So make a little note, uh, set goals, change your behavior. The other one is what is most realistic for you uh, where could you make the most gains? Uh, don't try to be too ambitious to start with, but find something that you could do, is palatable to you, uh, is realistic to you, and uh, that way you're more likely to, uh, to stick with it. Ultimately, behind all of this, and my public health approach, is we want to get the least active to do more activity. It's not really about getting those already active to do more, although that's fine. It's about getting the least active to do to do something and people can get updates from you via at Stuart underscore biddle what's your approach to twitter yeah i find twitter very useful i tend to use it for work related rather than social related um, means and so i i follow a number of organizations and people i follow up some of their links get some very useful information that i otherwise wouldn't have and then in terms of sending out messages myself I'll retweet some useful, uh, what I hope is useful information, and uh, maybe alert people to new papers coming out, uh, that kind of thing. So it's a very, very useful for medium for me. Thanks for listening to this BJSM podcast and listen to the other over 100 podcasts that have had over 350,000 listens. Have an active day.